So Patrick, why don't you come up here for a round of applause and read your wonderful novel and we can have a chat. So it, it, when it was a work in progress, it was called uh, a place called Winter, and now... Oh, no, sorry, it was a town called Winter, wasn't no, no, it? No, 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 it's always been a place called Winter. Are you sure? I've got yes. an email from you that says something else. Sakura Sachi. <laughs> anyway, I have here, I have... Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Bacall. Cheers, everyone. Cheers, new value. Patrick, over to you. Darling, are you, were you serious about reading two bits? I'd, oh, I'd, I'd love you to read two bits, I'd, as with everybody okay, else. Okay, okay. Well, um, I thought... For those of you who are loyal and were here last time, you'll remember I read um, a rather steamy bit where my, at that point, totally heterosexual hero, Harry Kane, in 1906, um, gets felt up by a voice therapist on German Street and his life changes forever. I thought I'd carry on and give you an instalment from later in the book where he meets the book's very own nine-incher. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't know his nine inches at this point. <laughs> Hashtag um, nine so, inches. So as a result of that little affair in German Street, Harry has been disgraced, almost. He's been forced to abandon his wife and child and leave the country. And he's taken the opportunity of going to Canada. Because at that point in Canada, you could get free 160 acres, provided you fenced them and cultivated them and lived on them within three years. Amazing, free land. Didn't belong to England, of course. It belonged to the poor native Canadians, but that's another novel. So at this point, Harry is on the boat and everyone is being sick. And he's somewhere in the Atlantic. The restaurant was deserted. Only in the nearby bar could two or three revenants be spotted on occasion, wordlessly dosing themselves with scotch or brandy, each in their own unsociable corner. For the most part, though, it was like walking through a ghost ship, its dimly lit saloons unoccupied, its occupants encountered only as muffled sighs or whimpers. Harry took possibly dangerous constitutionals around the deck, putting his new waterproof coat to the test as he clung to this railing or that, gasping at the wind and marvelling that the ship could slam safely into such walls of grey water. He borrowed books from the library and played rounds of patience. He picked out tunes on the piano but found that made him both self-conscious and powerfully homesick. He wrote mad, passionate, excoriating letters to Winnie and Browning, to Robert and Jack, which he crumpled and threw off the deck into the hungry brine. He took lunch in his cabin, thinking that would cause less bother, but felt the need to dress in the evening and go to dinner, if only to lend some sense of closure to the odd day. There was one other man sufficiently well to have an appetite for solids, a tall, strikingly handsome individual with the bearing of a school bully and short, thick hair, so white blonde, he might almost have been an albino. The first time he sat at one of the small tables, sensibly laid around the perimeter of the room, where there were plenty of handholds for both waiter and diner to seize. On that occasion, they did no more than bow to one another. The night after that, however, again coming in after Harry and seeing him dining in solitary state, he approached his table. May I? he asked. Please do, Harry said. I've spoken to no one but myself and the crew all day. The only two real men on the deck, eh? Well, I don't know about that. I, I was quite surprised to be so unaffected. Perhaps you have seafaring in your lineage. 
His accent was curious. Sorry, I don't do accents. His accent was curious, neither English nor Canadian. Munk, he said, holding out a hand. Trolls, Munk. Ah, said Harry before he could stop himself. Munk held Harry's hand and the gaze slightly too long for comfort. His grip was firm. They call me the troll, he said. English schoolboy humour, Harry said. They're very young. Munk, I can guess at, but trolls? Was there a Saint Trolls? I doubt it. It means Thor's spear. My parents are proud nationalists. You're Danish. Well done. Hardly an educated guess. I went by your hair colour. Ah. Harry saw that he was vain, and after they had been served mulligatawny soup and a glass of sherry each, decided to please him further. You have no accent, he lied. At least, you don't sound Scandinavian. We moved to Halifax when I was a boy, then to Toronto. It's a wonder I don't sound Irish. They were of an age, Harry guessed, though the other man's bulk and air of steely assurance made him seem the older. Harry was fascinated by the size of his hands, which seemed out of proportion, and the fastidious way he ate every morsel before him, wiping his soup bowl so clean with pieces of bread that it shone in the swaying lamplight. Troll's monk noticed him watching. I'm not starving, he said. Our mother used to beat us if we wasted food, and old habits die deep. Hard, Harry couldn't stop himself. We tend to say die hard. He stuttered on die. There was a pause as the waiter cleared away the soup. Harry feared it signified offence. Of course, Monk said eventually, alliteration is a very Nordic habit. I should have remembered. He murmured a few vigorously rhythmic lines of what was presumably Danish poetry, then smiled at Harry in a way that once again put him in mind of school and dangerous prefects. So are you also coming to Canada to seek your fortune? He asked, after their glasses had been refilled. Oh no, Harry confessed, not really. I'm to try my hand at farming, taking on a homestead, but I doubt it'll make my fortune. You don't, if you don't mind my saying, you don't look like a farmer. Not yet. I dare say that'll come. You have never farmed before. No, I've been reading a book my brother gave me, Elementary Agriculture and Animal Husbandry, which seems about my level. He laughed. Troll's Munk, however, became extremely serious. Please take my advice, he said. Learn to farm first. How to handle animals, how to plow, how to make hay and stack corn. There is an abundance of land, but very many people with no idea what they are doing on it. The posters lie. The wheat does not grow itself. Well, I know that. And the winters and the isolation will be harder than anything you have experienced in your soft English countryside. I'm a Londoner, actually. <laughs> All the more reason. Ah, beef. I like beef very much. Monk gave his full, painstaking attention to the meat and vegetables set before them, breaking off only to look across the little table at Harry almost boyishly, as if for reassurance. The sea air makes one hungry, Harry said, and his solicitude felt like a flirtation. He was suddenly conscious of the spectacle they must present to the waiter, two men eating and drinking together at an isolated table for two, like a grotesquely mismatched courting couple. He stifled the idea as it formed, 
but not swiftly enough to stop it triggering the absurd and painful notion of browning. Of browning on the boat with him, perhaps in an adjoining cabin. Of browning travelling to Canada to start a new life alongside his. By a kind of emotional convulsion, he sought to muffle these thoughts by recalling his blurted declaration of love and Browning's harsh dismissal of it. He ate his overcooked beef and sipped his unpleasantly cold claret. But the loneliness left in the wake of the swift succession of thoughts was so keen he felt it must show in his face like the rouge casually retained on a chorus boy's cheek after a show. Monk met Harry's eyes and raised his glass with a half smile. You're not stupid, he said, are you? Not like those English puppies, so sick in their bunks. I hope not, Harry said, stirred despite himself, that they were now somehow complicit. They are like puppies, aren't they? Barely house trained. So you're a man about town. Why homesteading? Why such a drastic change? Are you in disgrace? Did you murder someone? Should I be locking my door? Again, that tempting, dangerous sense of mutual understanding. Those blue eyes glittering with cunning. I think I should stop that bit there. <laughs> Damien, Damien actually asked me to read a, a second bit, which is much shorter. Um, which you will read. Which I will read. Do you want me to read it now? Yes. Okay. This, 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 this is... Um, it's not a social event. <laughs> Sorry, darling, I thought we had to chat. Um, okay, we now jump a whole year forward in the story. Um, the story, I should explain for those of you who weren't here a year ago, um, is based on a, a family mystery in my own family about my great-grandfather, who was called Harry Kane. I've, I've kept all the names the same. And Harry did indeed go out to Canada in 1907 and become a homesteader. And when researching and planning the novel, I determined and promised myself and my dead ancestors that I would honour every little fact I could find, however irritating um, it was to the structure of the story. And one of these facts was that Harry didn't take the advice of somebody, possibly a Trolls monk figure, and go and learn how to be a farmer for a year. So that's why there's now a year's gap. Harry, in the intervening year, has spent on a farm in a place called Moose Jaw, which I hope never of you, none of you have ever had to visit, because it is quite dull, even by Canadian standards. Um, <laughs> and he learns how to farm. The he learns the rudiments of farming in Moose Jaw. And now he has met up with Trolls again, because Trolls has arranged everything. Trolls is like a sort of... Mephistopheles figure controlling Harry's life. So Trolls has found him the farm in Moose Jaw, and Trolls has found him now the perfect place for his homestead. So the two of them have arrived in this place called Winter. It does exist. It's a long way from anywhere, out beyond a place called something horrific like Cut Knife. That's it, Cut Knife. Um, they've arrived. It's their first day there, and Trolls is helping Harry to, to make camp. Let's find the right bit, okay. I need a sip of cocktail because this bit's rather exciting. Um, <laughs> this book isn't entirely about sexy guys with enormous um, appendages. It's, it's also, it's also about women. It's also a lot about women, as all my novels tend to be. And Harry's story is very much the story of a man who is, undergoes a very painful emotional education. And it's largely at the hands of women. And 
in this scene, which there's the one Damien requested, we meet my favorite of the women. Um, one of the wonderful things I discovered researching the history of Saskatchewan at this period, when it wasn't even called Saskatchewan, was that as well as being a refuge for men like Harry who were in disgrace, it was also a refuge for new women, for women who were stifled by their conventional, respectable lives back east or in England, and seized on the chance of going to the prairies as a way actually to be self-willed and do their own thing. There's a wonderful book called A Flannel Shirt and Liberty, um, which is a series of accounts written by these women or taken from their diaries. And this character we're about to meet is, is really based on them. She's a sort of Shavian free woman, I suppose. Although she is there as a result of a disgrace, but you have to find out about that by reading the book. There were birds singing more than he had ever heard at Moose Jaw. He made out the cool, deliberate notes he had already learnt belonged to a chickadee, and there was an abundance of flowers. He made a note to send away for a botany book when he was next at a bookseller. That idea, in turn, brought home the realization that he had not seen what he thought of as a proper bookseller since leaving Moose Jaw, and that it might be months, years even, before he saw one again. Perhaps he could write to the one he used in London. He stood from filling his bottle and kettle and looked around him at prairie grass and saplings, at trees he would have to fell, and boulders he would have to lever onto a stone boat for the horses to pull out of the way. Once that was, he had a lever and a stone boat. Trolls had been right, however. Harry looked about him with eyes taught by Jurgensen and saw that this was land with good potential, watered but not waterlogged, with a gentle southerly slope to part of it, and even a small pillow of a wooded hill where he immediately knew he could build his house. At the same time, the gulf between the scene of fertile wilderness around him and the rolling wheat fields of the recruitment literature and railway posters hit him with a force that made him lean instinctively on a tree for support. Just then, he was surprised by the rattle of wheels and saw a white pony and trap coming along the track from the north. There was a slim woman at the reins, veiled against the dust, she raised a gloved hand in greeting as he emerged from the trees, and after a slight struggle, a slight struggle. I'm recording this as a talking book tomorrow. I've got to practice that bit. <laughs> and, and after a slight struggle, pulled her lively pony to a halt. Oh, she cried out as he approached. I thought you were Mr. Varco, come back at last, but you're not. No, he said. Sorry, I'm Harry Kane. I just took over his. Um, he gave up? Yes. Well, hello. She jumped easily from her little trap. I was bringing him a couple of pies, but I'll give them to you instead. How very kind. You haven't tried my pastry yet. She handed him two small, still warm pies wrapped in a piece of brown paper. My brother and I are your neighbors. The apple one has a little sugar on it, so you'll know it from the rabbit. Where are you? He looked around, seeing nothing but bluff, prairie, trees, and more prairie. As the crow flies, she said, we're there on the next little bulge. You might come in time to call a hill. She pointed, but the way to reach us is up this track. Then turn in at the next gate on the left. Out here, neighbor is a relative term, as you probably know, but that's where we are if you need us. <laughs> <laughs> 
You'll need a fire ditch, by the way, once the weather warms up in earnest, around your tent, I mean, just in case. He glanced the way she was looking. Ah, he said, thank you. We'll get on with that tomorrow, or I will. It was a miracle we didn't get burnt out last year, she continued, and we're overdue for a bad one. Are you here with your wife? No, no, I, I'm not married. The sad little truth sounded brave in that setting. I'm going to be on my own, but a friend's helping me get started. In fact, it was he who picked out this plot for me. Hearing trolls stamping back through the scrub and dropping off what sounded like an armful of logs, he called out, We've a visitor, a lady. I I'm so sorry, I don't even know your name, he told her. Slaymaker, she said. Petra Slaymaker. And to his surprise, she saw she was looking past him with something like fear. Well, small world, exclaimed Trolls, brushing the strands of moss and grass off his hands and waistcoat. Mr. Monk, she said, and all warmth had left her voice. Fancy that. As Trolls came to stand beside him, Harry smelt the musk of his sweat and something else, something threatening, if threat had a smell. Miss Slaymaker had taken a step backwards and now had a hand on her pony's bridle. What a delightful surprise, Trolls said, and Harry knew at once that it was no surprise at all. It's been months, years, she corrected him. We left Toronto four years ago. You look quite the man now. And you look as an imperious as ever. Has some lucky man... I'm homesteading with Paul, she said. Is he managing? He's thriving, thank you, she said briskly, turning her pony to face back the way she had come. Miss Slaymaker very kindly brought pies, Harry said, feeling he must say something, anything, to break the tension crackling between the two of them but she wasn't prepared to play the politeness game. Are you in winter for long? She asked Trolls. Just tonight, he said. I have business to see to back east. Young Harry has to cope on his own and is sure to do much better than Varko did. Poor Mr. Varko. But now that I know where you've been hiding, the prospect of coming back to check on his progress is suddenly much more attractive. She tried to smile, but it looked more like a wince. Good to meet you, Mr. Kane, she said stiffly. All Harry could think of was, thank you for the pies, at which she gave a nervous laugh and took off up the track. Trolls, Harry saw, were staring after her, alert as a hound on a scent. Did she say where she and her brother are farming? He asked. No, Harry lied. In the tension of the minutes just past, he had held the rabbit pie so hard that its pastry had cracked and dark gravy was leaking across his hands like blood. So good, and <laughs> Trolls is so evil and you're so good at but baddies. He's, he's quite hot though. He is bad hot. <laughs> He is bad for it. is a fine line. I mean, the, 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 you know, you read that extract, the extract you were reading, it's like farming today meets broke back, essentially. Kind of, yes. It's kind of, that's kind of with the, Morris in the middle. Yeah, yeah. with Morris, <laughs> with a Morris sandwich. Um, let's, let's talk about why Canada. Because, I mean, you know, he could, he, he's in disgrace. He's been blackmailed out of London not long after the Wild Scandal, mm. which is still very much 
hanging in the yeah, air. You know, he, he could have gone to a, a Australia or any one of a number of places. Uh, but Why? Australia was beastly back then. And, and, but also there weren't the opportunities. Australia, I mean, while researching the book, I, I, it was, I had this wonderful experience of thinking I was making something up and then talking to historians and discovering actually that was kind of the case. So Canada was unofficially very well established at this period as a, a safe place, respectable families could push disgraced or about to be disgraced members of the family. And the Church of England sent you know, paedophile priests out there, um, families sent men who had been caught out with other men out there. Um, it was, the, the joke was they thought they were sending them out there because they could become, they could make, make a man of them, because it was a tough place and you had to sort of, it was a man's world, but of course it was gay heaven, because there were no women, or <laughs> hardly any women. I mean, I found amazing photographs of, of these guys dancing together at these bachelor's balls. Um, which officially were done to try to attract women to go out there. I mean, I'd love to know how many women in this room seeing a photograph of a load of guys dancing together would think, oh, they need me. <laughs> I, I don't think so, no. Um, and I'm sure lots of them were pining for women, but they went a very funny way of showing it. And what was so sweet at these bachelor's balls is that in some of them, they would, the men who elected to be the girls, to dance backwards, would either wear a little pinny or, or a hanky tied around here just to show they were available to dance backwards. That's you know. so adorable. It's very, very sweet. I think we should adopt this again. <laughs> Some of us have. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so partly so that was why Canada, but also it was partly what I said earlier about wanting to honour the truth. Mm. Cowboy grandpa, I knew went out there, so I had to, I had to stick to that bit of the story. Was your, and was your cowboy grandpa like Harry? I mean, was he escaping a, a scandal? Well, or was... this is what I had to make up. Um, all I had was my grandmother's inked, you know, unpublished memoir, which was very much a, a sheltered daughter's version of the truth. And reading it, it didn't quite hang together, because she said, she actually corrects herself. At one point in the memoir, she says that he lost his money. And another point, she says, it was important that he leave the country. And I, Granny was raised largely by uncles and aunts, because unlike in the story, it's one of the few things I changed. My, my great-grandmother actually died not long after Harry left. Mm. So Granny was raised by these actually rather disapproving uncles and aunts and always referred to as poor Betty. There was a cloud over her, which she never quite understood. And so I had to come up with something that would make sense of that cloud. And I thought, well, if the men of the family and a few of the women knew that her father was something criminal, mm. this would explain why when her mother died, she wasn't immediately claimed by her father and sent out to Canada to join him. Um, and, the, the, and Canada, I mean, is an idea of a place at this point because, the, you know, it's not all entirely mapped. And so well, Saskatchewan didn't exist. It was, it was empty. It was like here be monsters. And people if were you look at the maps areas, from 1900, there's the East Coast, which was the oldest colony, and then the West Coast. And in the middle, this huge area, which had been entirely in the hands of the Cree and other tribes, where we were building these incredible railways. And that's where the name Winter comes from, because if you went along those old railway tracks, they, they had these totally kind of artificial points to stop. They just mapped them out and they were, you know, just so many miles, we'll have another stop. So many miles, we'll have another stop. And they named them alphabetically. So when you get to W, there's winter. On one side, there's Vera and there's Yonka. And so <laughs> it goes on. And those place names have survived, but the railway has gone in that bit. So it, it's quite weird. And winter is still there. It's a ghost town now, but the farm that Harry carved out of the ground with his own hands is still a farm. And so you went there? I found it, yes. I was stung to death by black flies trying to take photographs um, as the light was fading. But now I went there, and it was, thank God, beautiful. 
because I'd, I'd seen, I'd heard all the jokes from East Coast Canadians about, oh, you know, Saskatchewan is so boring that even, you know, if you ride a horse, your horse will fall asleep. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it is very flat, but luckily where, where he lived, there are hills. It's like a little bit of Gloucestershire. There are hills and lakes, and it's rather beautiful. So, <laughs> thank God I had something to write about other than flat. It would have been devastating. It would have been there quite it was tough. Absolutely hideous, and you were yeah. like, mm, you yeah. Know. Um, uh, <laughs> th there's a, another part of the story um, which which is very unfamiliar to me, which is the whole idea of somebody um, being two souls. That was wonderful. Um, yes. And you know, oh. uh, and I know that that is something that you you know you hadn't been thinking about including in the story no. necessarily until you went there and you met somebody. Tell us about and that. And Armistead has warned me about this. Um, what did he say? I, I, does anyone here? Has anyone here heard of the idea of the two spirits or the two souls people? Twin yes, lots of. Or, or, what do you call them? Twin flames, another term. There are lots of different translations of the various Cree and other Indian language words for it. But it's basically, the, the crudest way of describing it is within a tribe, most of, of North American Indian tribes had a, an equivalent of this. If a boy or a girl, sometimes girls, mainly boys, showed any signs of sort of transsexual behavior as a child, this wasn't a disgrace, it was a blessing. That child would then be tested to see they were really a two souls or two spirit child. And they'd be tested often by having a bow and arrow put over here and basket making equipment over there. And they would see which way the child went. And if the little boy went for the basket, they thought, right, she's a two souls. And that child would then be raised as a shaman. They would be given secret knowledge. They would be trained in mystic arts and in vision interpretation. And they would have real status. The prestige, yes. Yeah, Huge prestige. And one of the great, great traumas that we inflicted on these tribes was when we went along, the period I'm writing about, we were busy taking their children away and putting them into Christian boarding schools. You know, they, they would be kept all year away from their parents. We were desperate to stop them being native and to make them useful Christian servants. And of course, the teenagers, who by this stage would have been quite advanced shaman figures, were suddenly made to dress like boys, or like girls if they were girls who were dressing as boys, um, and were deprived of all, all status. And there's a um, character in the novel. And I have a character in the book. Um, and this came completely, one of those wonderful bits of left field research. Somebody in a gay book store in Toronto said, oh, if you're writing about that period, maybe you should have a look at this. And it was this incredible, not brilliantly written book, but fascinating, full of first-hand evidence. And it sent me off on a complete tangent. And the, in fact, the working title of the book was, was Harry Two Souls. And my, my very sensible editor, Imogen, who is here, said, no, darling. Um, <laughs> so, so we changed the title. But, but in, in the back of my head, it's very much the story of a man discovering he does have, he does have two souls and he is not this uptight Edwardian gentleman he was raised to be, but he has, he can have visions and he does at the climax of the novel, finally have a vision granted to him by chewing on one of these amazing herbs, <laughs> which I also researched. I didn't sample, but I, I spoke oh, you to- so dead. I, no, no, I, I spoke to some other scary transsexuals in a bar in Vancouver who had chewed the root I was writing about and they, they described what the taste was like. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll take a couple of questions now for, for Patrick. There's one at the back, and there's, of course, one right here from Sylvia. Hello. Oh, is, I mean, the, the, the well, two souls, is that, is that sparked a bigger idea? Might you kind of take that forward into another book, explore gender well, more? It's funny, yeah, because I've been writing gay-themed fiction 
since I was you know, 21, which was a hideously long time ago. I'm 53 on Saturday. Um, and and it, made me, it made me realize how little I know. That was very sweet. It made me realize how little I know, actually, about alternative sexualities. And um, I'm really scared, actually, about when this book comes out, especially in Canada and America. And Armistead has warned me, because he said, sweetheart, you think, you think gay sexuality and radicalism has gone away. It hasn't. It's just all gone to the two-spirit, two-soul community. He said, you'll be eaten alive by but these I people. I think your portrayal um, is incredibly affectionate and positive. And, yes, but what I'm scared about is I may have got ritual details wrong. Because what's so wonderful is these guys and women are now rediscovering that heritage yeah. and are practicing it again. And you yeah. can now you know, have consultations with them. Um, so they're, they're kind of re-empowered, and boy, are they angry. Well, as they uh, should be, yeah. <laughs> but it but is, no, it's a good question, and I, I am exploring it. I, I've, I'm, I'm finishing at the moment. I'm working on a, a, a gay drama, a long overdue, let's face it, gay drama for BBC One, yeah. prime time. Um, admittedly, they've chipped away at it. It was a three-parter. They've already made me cut the whole middle chap chapter, as it were, because they said, oh, we're not really interested in AIDS and Margaret Thatcher. We feel we've seen that before. So I took a deep breath and thought, OK, how can I shoehorn this material into it? <laughs> so they are going to buy. Um, but when is that going to be broadcast? That's what well, is being filmed this summer, so it'll be this time next year. How thrilling. That's, what's it called? And it's called Man in an Orange Shirt, and we're already playing fantasy casting. I'm thinking um, Russell Tovey in bed with Tom Ellis, maybe. And I'm Who forcing, isn't thinking that? No, but I'm thinking all these stra <laughs> hunky straight actors are being forced into bed without gay actors. That's the kind of theme of the casting, <laughs> I think. And they're going after um, lovely, oh, God, he played Keats. is too thin to live, um, you know. Yes, that's sure. the one. That's the one. Yes, yes. I, I interviewed and the, cause, him because the first episode is set in the Second World War, and we need an officer class, willowy well, he, young he, he, man. I know. interviewed him last year, and there's a picture of uh, of him sort of like coming up for hug, and it looks like I'm about to eat him or <laughs> or floss with him. Yes. It's very uh, it's hard to tell which we don't do. No, he's lovely. We love him. He's Twiglet good. Man. Yes, your question. You need to stand up for it. Oh, anyway, go on. What's your question? <laughs> the love is praise. I'm enjoying I know. it. Okay, yeah, I know. <laughs> do, do you find or inspired or liberated by the, the, the mass of previous literature and film about this frontier culture? Oh, yeah. And, and did you have any, you know, period fetishists that you feel that you had <laughs> I, I, I was actually... I was so really the, question, the question for those who didn't hear it was how far did you feel liberated or constrained by that whole kind of... By the you existing, know, the, pioneer, the existing culture. pioneer culture. On, on one hand, I, I felt constrained by it because you know, there's a lot of it and it's very, very good. Um, but on the other hand, I thought, actually, I haven't read much gay stuff about this. And I, I, was rapidly, I rapidly became aware what I was writing was a Western, which on the one hand is a profoundly homoerotic genre, and yet outside of the kind of you know, one-handed press, there is very little in the way of, of gay Westerns. Um, and Brokeback Mountain wasn't a Western because they were shepherds. Mm. Um, it was about gay shepherds. I got very cross all these journalists saying gay cowboys. No, there wasn't a cow in the whole film. Um, <laughs> actually, not many cows in this either, but there we go. This is about gay wheat growers. Um, <laughs> but I, I was actually, I was, more, I was more constrained by my family and by the thought of all those bloody ancestors, because there are a lot of them, and they're all in the book. And I've done my best 
by them, but some of them come off quite badly. And that was odd. That was very odd. And my mother and my aunt are the last surviving members of that side of the family. And what do they think? Um, oh, thank God my mother has Alzheimer's now. And so <laughs> oh, she, she still reads, but she kind of pretends <laughs> to read. So she's carrying this proof around in her Zimmer, in her little Zimmer basket. And she shows it to everyone and says, my son has written another book and it's wonderful. She has no idea what it's about. <laughs> Great. Um, so I did, and your aunt? My aunt, I've yet to dare show her. But what's quite sweet is these two women, my aunt and my mother, are the last surviving people to have met the real-life cowboy grandpa, because he did come back to England very briefly when my mother was first married. And I've got a photograph of them all together with my, my sister, who was then a babe in arms. Um, so they, they gave me little details about what he was like as, a, as this prematurely old man, which was so sad. I, I, didn't, I changed the whole structure of the book. I, I couldn't. I wanted originally to begin and end in the 1950s with that visit back to England. And mm. it, it was, as you know, the book is pretty sad. It's a free hanky job. Very, uh, and I just thought, no, actually, that's one bit of truth I'm going to leave out. I want us to be left thinking Harry's going to be okay. Well, I'm um, not going to reveal too much about it, but I, I will say it is very sad. It is very beautiful. It is going to be a huge sensation. Thank you, Patrick Gill, for coming in, sharing with you us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.